0: This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at ABAjournal.com. Thank you for joining us for the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm ABA Journal web producer, Lee Rawls. Our guests here today are attorneys James Daly and Ryan Davidson. They are the co-authors of the newly released book, The Law of Superheroes, and of the blog Law and the Multiverse, which was just honored as one of the 2012 Blog 100 in our December issue. James and Ryan, how did you start writing together?
1: Oh, I started the blog uh, just about two years ago now, or actually just about the two-year anniversary of the blog. And um, uh, uh, Ryan and I are both members of a website called Metafilter, which is a community web blog where, where people just post about things that are interesting around the web and one of the sections of that blog is a thing where you can post your own projects that you're working on, and I put the, the, the blog up there uh, thinking that, well, that, you know, maybe a handful of people would think it was kind of neat, and, and that would probably be it. I'd probably uh, end up winding it down after a couple of months, and that would be that. But Ryan was actually the, the very first uh, comment on it and said that, you know, he thought it was uh, a great idea, and uh, if, if I wanted a co-author, he'd be happy to, to come on. And um, so he, he came on pretty much right from the beginning, and... Um, it's It's been a great collaboration ever since.
0: Where do you two live? Do you live near each other?
1: Uh, no, no, Not I live in, yeah, well, I mean, we don't live as far apart as as it's possible to, but we don't live <laughs> particularly close. Uh, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and then and Ryan is in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We actually only met in person for the first time, oh, what was it, maybe six months after the blog got started? Um, yeah, it was in uh, May of 2011. Yeah, we were speaking at a convention, and then we met again for the second time for New York Comic Con just recently. Uh, so something like 18 months after the – or more after the blog got started. So, so yeah, we, we actually don't see too much of each other in person, but uh, the, the magic of the Internet makes it possible to collaborate pretty easily.
0: What has been the comic book fan reaction to your work so far? You, like, you talked about going to Comic
2: Con. On the whole, it's been really positive. Comic book fans tend to like to think about these stories in detail, and we are providing information on a niche that not many other people are serving.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we we generally get positive uh, feedback from comic book fans. I I mean, of course, we sometimes get corrections, people pointing out that, oh, well, no, actually, you know, in issue uh, 123, uh, you'll see that actually – uh, you know, uh, this, this or that fact that we that we had said was, was inaccurate, but we like that. We You know, we can't read every comic book out there by any means, and I think that our clients would prefer that we were, you know, attorneys first and comic book fans second. So to the extent we have to prioritize, you know, we prioritize our day jobs. So we, we value that feedback. I think it, it helps us uh, uh, keep things accurate, and, uh, and yeah, we, we very rarely get uh, much in the way of negative feedback. Now, sometimes we've had, Posts that are controversial with comic book fans. So, for example, Peter Parker, alias Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Makes, I know that one. Uh, yeah, makes uh, makes money selling photographs of Spider-Man in action to a newspaper, the Daily Bugle. Uh, but he doesn't disclose the fact that he's actually Spider-Man, and this is pretty relevant. Both for journalistic ethics reasons and also because the editor of the Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson, is not a fan of Spider-Man, to say the least, and, and typically, uh, you know, writes for the anti-Spider-Man editorials and stuff. Well, there was a, a comic book where Spider-Man's secret identity came out, and Parker was sued by the Bugle uh, for various things, and so we took a look at that, and our conclusion was that, yeah, I mean, they, they probably have a pretty good case on a couple of different counts and the, the fan, fan reaction was, was pretty negative. <laughs> and some people disputed our analysis, but mostly it just seemed to be that people were really unhappy with the idea that we were suggesting that Peter Parker was anything less than completely honest.
2: That some of that may reflect general fan unhappiness with that storyline, too.
1: Right, yeah. It's not really considered one of the best Spider-Man storylines for a lot of different reasons that we won't get into, but... Um, but, yeah, so, the, so sometimes we've had some controversial posts like that, um, some other posts suggesting that, for example, Superman is probably best thought of under the present law as, a, as an animal, not as a human for various reasons, unless there was a specific act of Congress uh, declaring Kryptonians or aliens to be, um, to be humans to be, or to be legal persons. Uh, so that also has, has caused some controversy. Uh, but, but apart from those, those kinds of things, uh, the fan reaction has been positive. How
0: about the reaction of the people you meet in your day job? What do lawyers think?
1: Not a whole lot, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, 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 we get uh, positive feedback from lawyers, law students, uh, law professors, uh, and even a, a judge or two, and we've never really gotten any negative feedback from anybody in the profession. Now, I suspect that there are maybe not a whole lot of lawyers who are also comic book fans, in a proportional sense, but in, in an absolute sense, I think there are quite a few. Uh, we've certainly gotten fan mail from, from several, and uh, I, it's, it's, all, it's all been pretty positive. My boss certainly doesn't mind <laughs> uh, the
2: blog or the book or anything. He's been pretty supportive. We've also gotten a lot of really good feedback from those comic creators that have reached out to us. We were able to meet some uh, at various comic cons, especially in New York, we actually uh, had a good conversation with Mark Wade, who currently writes Daredevil, uh, and Matt Murdoch is an attorney. So we're hoping that um, proves to be a productive relationship. We actually heard a rumor that a lawyer from D.C. was in the audience at our panel at New York Comic Con.
1: Interesting. And so, and so far we haven't heard anything from D.C. or Marvel about what we do uh, officially, so they, don't, they don't, apparently don't seem to mind too much.
0: Oh, D.C., the comic company. I'm like, from Washington, D.C.? Well, there are a lot of lawyers in Washington, D.C.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that makes so much more sense now. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the content of the book. The biggest legal issue with superheroes that springs to my mind immediately is tort law and insurance, which is Chapter 5 in your book. It seems like civil lawsuits against superheroes would be an enormous problem.
1: Yes, if it is. it would be a big problem, but only for the ones that can be brought into court and only for the ones that have any hope of satisfying a judgment if they can be brought into court. So, there's uh, if you sort of look at the Venn diagram of superheroes, there are those that can't really be brought into court because they have an effective secret identity. So, for example, virtually nobody knows Batman's secret identity. That's an extremely well-kept secret in the comic book universe. Um, and so, even though he does
0: it, have a lot of wealth and could pay a judgment, yeah. right?
1: But but there's but nobody knows that he's Bruce Wayne. So, you know, how do you serve process on Batman? Um, and even if they wanted to, you know, haul him into court physically somehow, um, that uh, like an, like, a, like in a criminal case, for example, uh, that even that would be difficult because he seems quite good at eluding the police. Um, you know, the classic example of him having a conversation with Commissioner Gordon on the rooftop of the police department, and then Gordon looks away for a second, and then he's gone. You know, so, uh, so even, you know, right under their noses, he, he doesn't seem to have any trouble eluding the police. So what hope does a process server have? And uh, then there's superheroes that are essentially, you know, cosmically powerful, uh, Superman uh, or an even even more so, other characters, uh, where, uh, you know, again, good luck getting them into court, or they they seem sort of beyond uh, the human justice system, and then there are ones that maybe their secret identity is not quite as well known or becomes known. So, for example, Peter Parker as Spider-Man becoming known at one point, although that was later fixed through <laughs> editorial fiat, more or less. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, he's broke. I mean, he's, uh, he's basically variously a, a, a starving student or a, a starving recent student. Uh, he doesn't seem to, uh, to have a lot of assets, and so he's, he's on the scale of, of, you know, superhero-type damages. He's basically judgment-proof. Um, so you, you really have to look for people whose identities are public and who have a lot of money. And there are very few of those. Um, the Fantastic Four uh, is, is one, and Iron Man, you know, Tony Stark is, is another, where they don't, they don't really have a secret identity. They have a public identity, and that public identity is quite wealthy. Um, so, yeah, so, so for those superheroes, yeah, it's a big issue. And um, I think finding a, uh, an insurance policy might be a good idea if possible, and, and Ryan could probably say more about that.
2: Yeah, I'm reminded of actually two different stories. Uh, One's a comic book called The Uniques. Uh, It's an independent comic put out by a a couple in Michigan. Um, They're actually really trying to sit down and say, okay, what happens to society and the legal system if people with superpowers just sort of show up? Um, And they concluded that the government was going to have to regulate this somehow. Uh, the existence of people who can fly or read minds or, you know, have flame powers or whatever, this is going to have a radical effect on society, and sort of not dealing with that hurts the the realism of stories. Uh, And then there's just the movie The Incredibles. You know, we've got these superheroes, and they're all working with the government, and the government has a role in their um, place in society. And eventually, the government decides, we can't afford to do this anymore. It's just too expensive. Yeah, as far as insurance goes, uh, we're almost looking at developing a new kind of product because a lot of the types of damages that would happen in a superhero battle or you know, caused by a supervillain might well be excluded under most uh, standard policy forms.
0: How well do you think superhero comics hew to actual legal precedents
1: in general? In a sense, most of them fairly badly, but in another sense, no worse than most other popular media. Um, so probably worse than your average Law and Order episode, so a show that's kind of trying to focus on on the law, but no worse than you know your your average police procedural or or drama or a show that doesn't really have to do with the law, but tangentially touches on it in a in an episode or two. Uh, you know, they they all. You know, all, all popular media tends to gloss over the, the details of – and it's not just the law of everything in, – in service of moving the plot forward and keeping things simple enough that everybody can follow along, and, and, and that's all fine. Um, the, the handful of comics that focus focus on the law, so they have attorneys as as main characters, for example. There are several superheroes who are attorneys by day. Those have mostly been okay. In our in our experience, uh, some of them have had some kind of kind of glaring issues, but usually not that would terribly upset the plot. Um, so, for example, there's a, a comic Manhunter, uh, not to be confused with Martian Manhunter, a, a different Manhunter, and uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, although confusingly both of them put out by DC. Uh, and uh, there's a scene where um, there's a, the superhero who attorney is a, is a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney, and she attends the grand jury hearing for her client and, uh, you know, represents her client and even has an objection at one point. And there's a judge uh, in the grand jury hearing. And, and, you know, this is all completely wrong. I mean, uh, grand jury hearings don't work that way. There's no no judge. There's no audience in the gallery. There's certainly no uh, defense attorney. But on the other hand, the writer did, kind of nod to the fact that this was a little incongruous because the judge mentions that, you know, you, you don't even have a right to be here. You're here because I'm letting you. And that, that, you know, I, I, you know, that's not entirely accurate. Uh, neither uh, neither the attorney nor the judge should be there, but at least there was a nod to the fact that what was being shown in the comic for purposes of plot and having a good, interesting scene were not, you know, entirely normal from a legal point of view. It was a decent hand wave. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, and a lot of the time we find that even if there's there's some issues with the details of the way the law is worked out, um, we can sort of tweak it a little bit to say, okay, we can get a result that looks like this. It might happen a little differently, um, but, you know, we, we can get from port A to point B.
1: Yeah, we, we take kind of a Mythbusters approach. Further, for first we try to replicate the... This, you know what's claimed in the in the story you know can we actually support this in the law and then um, and then we if we if we can't do that well, then we go to well, what does it take to make it fit you know what 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 in either the law or the facts do we have to change in order to make it work the way it's uh, showed to get the same result And if you know sort of, sort of first try to replicate the circumstances, and then try to replicate the results. And uh, we, we find that which generally that actually works works pretty well. And, and occasionally the, the writers surprise us. And uh, so, for example, in, in Daredevil, there's been a, at least a couple of cases where I thought, oh, you know, the, the writer stepped in and now, you know, what, what I'll do with the research and what I'll find is that he's wrong. You know, my, my gut instinct was that he was wrong. Uh, and actually it turned out that no, the, uh, whether by accident or by design, and quite possibly by design, because he, he has mentioned that he, he has... Uh, uh, talk to a few attorneys on occasion to make sure that he's, you know, at least halfway getting it right. But by accident or by design, it actually ended up being okay. And uh, and and those are those are great things to do because it's it's always fun as an attorney to research a new issue and find out, you know, no, it's not what you would have guessed. It's different. Um, and then we we hope that other people find that interesting too because whether they're an attorney or or not, they may be you know equally surprised by it as we were.
2: Yeah. And a lot of times where we find that the, the law, quote-unquote, or that the story sort of gets it wrong, we, we may be in an area where if the facts were as they are in this story, like if people with superpowers really did exist, we, the, the law would probably have changed a bit to deal with some of these circumstances. So, yeah, if this happened in court today, it wouldn't look that way, but it might in that world. Do
0: you guys have an excerpt you'd like to read for us?
2: Uh, we do. Um Yeah, I have a section here on uh, Superman and taxes. Ooh, Um, great. This starts on page 190 of the book in the chapter on administrative law. The federal agency that we all butt into eventually is the IRS, and superheroes aren't immune to the long arm of tax law. For example, in Superman III, Superman crushes coal into a diamond and gives it to Lana Lang. This iconic gift has become closely associated with the Superman character, but because we are returning, we have to ask, does someone have to pay tax on that? It might seem strange to think that the IRS would bother trying to come after Superman, but as mentioned earlier in this chapter, it's happened before. Speaking of which, just what about Superman's plan to claim the whole world as his dependent? First, we'll talk about the diamonds, which are also mentioned by the IRS agent in Superman number 148. There are actually two different questions in this case. One, are the diamonds taxable income for Superman or Clark Kent? And two, are they taxable income for a recipient such as Lana Lang? The answer to the first question is probably not. A traditional, almost fundamental principle of tax law is that a gain in value must be realized before it can be taxed, although the definition of realized has expanded over the years, somewhat eroding the principle. The Internal Revenue Code provides that one example of income is, quote, gains derived from dealing in property, unquote. Dealings are not defined in the statute, but 26 U.S.C. Section 1001A defines the computation of, quote, the gain from the sale or other disposition of property, unquote. It seems clear that improving the value of the carbon by turning from coal to a diamond is not such a taxable event, since there is neither a sale nor disposition of the property. An analogy might be made to a painting a picture or one that appreciates in value. The increase in value is not taxed until the painting is sold or otherwise transferred to someone else. But the answer to the second question is very different. If a diamond is given to Lana Lang, that is, as a gift, which has its own set of special rules, in the United States, gifts are generally not taxable income for the recipient, but there is a gift tax that is ordinarily paid by the giver. However, there is a significant exclusion for gifts that currently stands at $13,000 per recipient per year, as well as a unified lifetime credit. This credit may not solve the problem, however. Superman may have made other gifts that already use up the credit. He has certainly been around long enough to have done so. Presumably the diamond was given as a gift today and the lifetime credit was not available, would they exceed the exclusion? Obviously this depends on the size and quality of the diamond and the state of the diamond market, but for example, the diamond given to Lana Lang in Superman three appears to be about three point five to four carats and of a very good quality. A similar diamond would cost anywhere between one hundred and fifty and four hundred thousand dollars, depending upon the particulars, which is far beyond the gift exclusion. So how much would Superman be on the hook for? The answer is a lot. For example, if the ring were valued between one hundred and fifty and two hundred and fifty thousand, then the gift tax would be 38800 plus 32% of the excess beyond 150000 so potentially as much as $70,800. But is the fair market value of the diamond simply that of an ordinary diamond of its liking quality? The general rule for computing the value of a gift of property is given in 26 CFR section 25. 2512-1, the value of the property is the price at which such property would change hands between a willing buyer and a willing seller, neither being under any compulsion to buy or sell, and both having reasonable knowledge of the relevant facts. The unusual origin of the diamond is almost certainly a relevant fact, and if diamonds are created by Superman or rare, which seems to be the case, then this particular diamond would command a significant premium and its tax would be correspondingly higher. This is a problem, since Clark Kent probably doesn't make enough money to pay the tax, and Superman probably doesn't want to get tangled up with the IRS. It is possible to perform a, quote, net gift for which the recipient pays the tax, but it is unlikely that Lana has the money for that either. She could sell the ring to pay the tax, of course, but that would defeat the purpose of the gift. Alternatively, Superman could give her several diamonds with the intention that she keep one as a ring and sell the others to pay the taxes on all the diamonds. As complicated as that would be, it might be the only way to keep things above board. If potentially ruining the, the surprise weren't an issue, however, then Superman could potentially avoid the gift tax by giving Lana a gift of coal and then turning it into a diamond. This works because the gift tax only applies to the transfer of property, and the gratuitous rendering of services is not taxed. On the other hand, neither are the tax deductibles performed for a charity. There are few ways in the real world to transform essentially worthless material into something extremely valuable with relatively little effort, so the tax code doesn't bother applying, doesn't bother trying to tax gratuitous services. In short, this is a tax loophole for Superman.
0: Well, goodness. (laughs) Thank you both for appearing on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. My pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.